0: Hey, folks, and welcome to episode 180 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm assistant to Peter Lighthart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a stimulating discussion between Peter Lighthart, Alistair Roberts, and our special guest, Yoram Hazoni. Yoram is the president of the Herzl Institute in Jerusalem, and is the author of the newly published book, The Virtue of Nationalism. In this conversation with Peter, Alistair, and Yoram, they're going to discuss things such as the biblical understanding of empire, and different topics from his book dealing with nationalism and sovereign nations. We've put a link down there in the show notes for you to Yoram's book, as well as a recent article from Alistair Roberts dealing with some of the aspects of the book. With that, we really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this conversation, And as always, thank you so much for listening.
1: Welcome to this special edition of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart. I'm here with Brian Motes in Birmingham, Alabama, and we're joined remotely today by Alistair Roberts, a regular on our podcast, and we're also very pleased and honored to have Yoram Hazoni with us today, and we're going to be discussing his recent book, The Virtue of Nationalism. Uh, over the next uh, hour or so. Uh, Yoram, welcome. Uh, Glad you made the time to join us on the podcast.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure.
1: Let me explain a little bit to our listeners why we're spending time with this book and uh, spending time with you. As uh, anyone who's been uh, conscious, had a pulse, knows the issues of nationalism and internationalism have been central to the Uh, To recent political life in the United States and in many other places around the world. Uh, And Yoram is one of the few writers who has offered a defense, a thoroughgoing defense of nationalism. Uh, That's of interest by itself in addressing the contemporary political world and the contemporary political landscape. Uh, What interests us at Theopolis even more is that Yoram approaches this issue uh, from a biblical perspective. Uh, one of his earlier books is the philosophy of the Hebrew Scripture in which he examines various philosophical questions. Questions, for example, about epistemology, questions about political philosophy, but he's doing it from within a biblical framework and within, particularly within the context of the Hebrew Scriptures. And when he's writing about the virtue of nationalism, it's a wide-ranging book that covers a lot of different things and draws on a lot of sources. But at the heart of it what Yoram is doing is um, defending uh, what he calls a, a Protestant understanding of the nation. Uh, so uh, that biblical emphasis appeals to us at uh, Theopolis. That's one of our that's one of our things is to try to try to work out biblical a biblical perspective on political life. Our uh, very name expresses that vision: God's city and an, a biblical understanding of uh, the political world. So Yoram is a, a leading thinker in this area, and we're very pleased to have have him with us today. Uh, Yoram is uh, the president of the Herzl Institute in Jerusalem. And uh, before we get started on the book, Yoram, uh, could you give a little bit of background on the Herzl Institute and what you do there?
2: The- Theodore Herzl, as I think many of your listeners know, was the uh, was the the founder of the modern uh, the the. The modern Zionist movement, which led to the establishment of uh, of the State of Israel, uh, and the the Institute is devoted to advancing uh, not the project of establishing the State of Israel since it's already established, but the further project of attempting to uh, retrieve and restore uh, the the Jewish tradition of ideas of which uh, the State of Israel is just one of them. so, uh our our scholars uh research and write and teach um, on uh both the bible and on uh classical rabbinic uh understanding of the the tradition but we we have primarily an eye to um, bringing to bringing uh, scripture as jews read it out to the public uh, out to a broader public that that may mean a Jewish public, but in recent years it's also been a, a, a Christian and a non-Christian public. Uh, we've we've discovered that there are a, a great many people who are interested in hearing um, tr- traditional Jewish readings of uh, of, uh, of scripture, um, and we we do this across various subject areas. So p- p- political theory is one of them, and we'll be talking about that some. But we also uh we also look at uh Jewish scripture and rabbinic interpretation as far as uh morals and metaphysics and in in general we try to um to understand whether um, whether Jewish scripture has something to say to uh to the academic academic disciplines of uh philosophy political theory intellectual history which f- to a very large extent ignore um, this this part of the western past they 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 tend to prefer to see our intellectual heritage in the modern west as being kind of this great superhighway from from Athens to Berlin and uh our our goal is to deeply complicate that picture by placing uh, the Bible um, at the heart of the intellectual tradition.
1: So, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the author now, but there was a book uh, some years back about the development of what's called Western civilization with the ironic title, From Plato to NATO. So, And the point was the same, that that, that narrative ignores the biblical tradition. And he was particularly looking at the the west as uh, it developed in the middle ages with the with the christian middle ages and that that gets passed over as a kind of interruption of the of the narrative well, it sounds like you have a similar kind of program
2: well i i i think it's a, a very common view um to to see things this way The i mean it it's its source is in german academia in the in, invention of the uh of of the modern german university at at the beginning of the 1800s and uh the germans were um, to to put it mildly not very interested in uh the jewish <laughs> contribution to uh the history of western ideas and as a, and and they were also not very interested in uh in anglo-scottish contributions either. I mean, as far as they were concerned, uh, the, 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 the people of the British Isles had gone way too far into, uh, into all of this Judaizing interest in the, uh, in the Old Testament, and, and, and they were having none of it. And American universities today, and imitating the most universities in the world, including here in Israel, are um, they continue to follow this model uh, that that really goes from from Athens to Berlin and uh it's it's wrong-headed in a great many ways but one of the ways in which it's wrong-headed is that uh, uh that a subject like um political theory in which you would think that the in independent national state uh the independent nation state is is an important subject you you can easily do a doctorate in uh, but in, in, in the subject of political theory almost anywhere and never have the national state or the nation state discussed as a subject. And the reason for that is because it's not, it's not a subject in Greek or Roman political theory. In order to find it, you have to, you, you have to look into biblical political theory. So that, that, that's just one of many examples where the, uh, the intellectual history is so so deeply skewed by the uh, erasure of the Bible as an influence that you you can't even study basic ideas that have informed and been decisive in the West.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I noticed from your uh, a bio that you also were uh, involved in the founding of a liberal arts college in Israel, and uh, I'm assuming that that has the same kind of outlook that you have you're wanting to do a liberal arts curriculum that has scripture at the heart of it.
2: That that's exactly right. I mean, the, the, there is a more general question that has to do with uh, uh, with particular traditions. Um, if if you're setting up a Jewish liberal arts college, then you'd want to put an emphasis on uh, on on Jewish things. And if you're setting up a you know something parallel in uh, in, in China, then you'd want to put an emphasis on Chinese things. But as far as Western countries are concerned, uh, the, the, the fact that, uh, that the tradition is supposed to begin is almost always thought to begin, um, with pr- the pre-Socratics or with Socrates mm-hmm. when, uh, when Hebrew Bible is, uh, Chronologically and in many respects thematically prior to Greek philosophy, uh, it, it is quite a distortion. So what some of the, some of the Christian schools do is they'll, they'll modify this tradition by, um, studying, uh, first Athenian philosophy and then from there they'll go to, you know, the Romans and the Stoics and then they get to, uh, then they start the Bible. So they, they insert nice. the, the entire, the, the Old and New Testaments, they insert them, uh, you know, about, uh, a thousand years too late, or fifteen hundred years too late, depending on how you look at it. And I, I, I understand that, that Christians might want to keep the two testaments together, but in terms of understanding the actual story of what happened to, what, what ideas came up were, were, were discovered, invented, and revealed in the West. It, it it's very distorted.
1: Yeah, you're you're uh, you're speaking our language. Uh, that's uh, we, we very much share that uh, that perspective. That the the just as a historical matter, apart from any idea of revelation, uh, the scripture, the the Bible, and the biblical world precedes the Greek world. And you're probably aware that there was a tradition among the Church Fathers that. Claim that the uh, insights, particularly theological insights, that the ancient Greeks had came from Moses. You know, this was a this was a tradition that goes back to the early post-apostolic fathers. It's picked up by Augustine, and he tries to show how Plato would have encountered uh, Jewish writings and Jewish uh, Jewish teachers on uh, on visits to Egypt. So even uh, th- that's whether you can establish that historically or not is one question but the the instinct there is to try to place the classical tradition within the biblical framework rather than uh, turning that around and making the classical framework the framework the framework
2: yeah i I am very I'm very sympathetic i do, I don't know whether historically uh, it's possible at this stage to to say anything definitive but on the other hand the uh, the the fact that uh, that uh Jeremiah was in exile in in uh, uh in 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 the city of Daphne at the time that there was a militian garrison there you know th- these These kinds of things are facts and uh yeah. if they if they do uh, they should at least give the students an understanding. That, uh, that Jerusalem is a three, three or four days, uh, boat ride away from Athens. It's not some other planet. And <laughs> the more, I, I think mostly our ability to, to keep the, you know, this question of did Jerusalem influence Athens in any way, it's a fascinating question. Our ability to keep it suppressed has a lot to do with the fact that we don't study scripture for its for its philosophy we're not we're not so interested in questions like um what what are the metaphysical presuppositions of uh of of the prophet's descriptions of uh of creation or of goodness or of uh of being or of truth these are subjects that i I talk about in, in my philosophy of Hebrew scripture book. As soon as you start asking those questions and you say, well, what, is there such a thing as a prophetic metaphysical standpoint? What is the evidence? And, and you start trying to understand it. The moment you do that, then you start to see, um, where, uh, where the prophets are similar and where they conflict with, uh, pre-Socratic and, uh, and, and then, then Platonic and Aristotelian philosophy that's the kind of discussion i want to have i don't i don't think i have the 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 final answers about who influenced what but i agree with you that uh that if we want to be able to make intelligent proposals about this kind of thing and to understand uh wh- whether whether the church fathers were uh were really speaking sensibly uh then we we absolutely have to go back to to scripture and ask it philosophical questions and and see whether we get the answers that that the tradition that you're describing comes up with.
3: Yeah. In his book The Legend of the Middle Ages, Remy Bragg writes, what made made European culture, Hellenism and Israel, was not European, and the two cities that symbolize the two, Athens and Jerusalem, are not in Europe. For a European, studying them is not a means for appropriating one's own past, but of getting outside of oneself. Works up he goes on to say they worked over these acquisitions, developed them and prolonged them, but they never forgot that what they were borrowing came from the outside and that its source remained outside. thus Europe became engaged in an endless dialectic. it found its motive force in the very foreignness of what it needed to assimilate and what since it remained outside, continued to arouse its desire. The question of European identity is a particularly pronounced one in the current context and you get into the questions of the modern European Union and what that represents. How do these issues of European tradition and the um, influence of Jewish thought in particular and biblical thought, how does the loss of that connection um, relate to part of the modern crisis that we're facing and how might a restoration of that heritage, help us to address it?
2: I think you're asking exactly the right question. There's um, a, a strong view, which I, which I think is the academic, it's the by far the dominant academic view today, which implicitly sees Greece as part of Europe and part of the European tradition and does not see ancient Israel as part of the European tradition. And you, you can see this very clearly in Kant or in Hegel, um and, and it descends from there. It's a, it's a, a view that sees enlightenment as the, uh, achievement of, uh, of, of European tradition. And enlightenment begins with, uh, According to this telling, enlightenment is is a uh, is a secularization of something that takes place um, uh, w- with the Greeks. Uh, it, it's a it's a modernization, a, a a climax of something that begins with the Greeks, and it is not something that begins with ancient Israel. As far as as Kant and Hegel are concerned, their historiography sees Israel as simply darkness. There's light and there's darkness and Israel is the darkness. And, uh, today, uh, we, we stand at, at, at a somewhat odd crossroads because that, that German view, um, has been in conflict with, uh, with the, certainly with the Western Protestant traditions, with, with Calvinism and Anglicanism for centuries. And, uh, the 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 dutch the english the scots um the americans and other western protestant peoples to differing degrees are um tended to see themselves as descended uh intellectually descended uh from the bible and and they placed a great emphasis on on the old testament and not only on the new testament and that lineage and that that descent uh gave those peoples um a uh a a, a world view that is uh i think in many respects much more wor- worldly much more um uh, comfortable with uh, uh with life in this world and and with um, things like uh procreation and nations and um and uh the necessity and, and and the command god's commandment of uh raising up families is applying to uh everyone and not only to some um th- these are just some examples but it from a jewish perspective this tradition uh seeks in hebrew scripture seeks a, a god's truth and uh finds all sorts of things which uh which we as Jews recognize as as being very similar to to our own traditions and uh so a tradition like like the anglican tradition which is um, uh concerned to uh, not only with scripture but with the uh the um, uh, the the historic development of a national tradition as having its own unique approach to to god um, that is something that I think as Jews, we find a great kinship uh, in that uh now you asked about where we are today today uh these countries have largely given up these traditions they've given up the Bible I don't mean that there aren't you know a great many pious Christians who continue to keep the flame, but as far as the public culture of uh, America or the Netherlands or or, or the UK um these are countries that are to a very great degree post biblical and as a consequence things that we find in the old testament um the, the 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 concern for the uh for procreation for the family for the independent nation uh for um for attempting to uh, uh create a, uh, a a a holy nation on earth and for a covenant with god all of these things are gone, to a very great degree, and uh, the results are before us. It, it's not as though the the uh, enlightened heirs to, uh, not heirs, the, the 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 enlightenment that has replaced this old biblical tradition has succeeded in governing well. I think everybody can see right now that that what's happening is 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 is, is really terrible.
3: Within your book, you talk about. The way that after the Thirty Years' War there was the foundation of a, a, triumph of a vision, a Protestant vision of independent nation states, and you talk about the two foundational scriptural principles that undergirded that. Um, I'd be interested to hear you say more about those.
2: I was describing in in, in the virtue of of nationalism. I I I begin by describing um, the the prophetic opposition to empire. Uh, the uh, Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is is uh, um, politically preoccupied with, with the, the problem of what to do with these uh, vast imperial states, uh, Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, Persia, uh, whose gods uh, send them to conquer the four corners of the earth in order to bring peace and prosperity to, to mankind. And this, this vision of peace and prosperity coming as a consequence of the conqu- conquest of all nations is something that, uh, Hebrew Bible is, uh, emerges, um, in op, in opposition to. It's, a, it, the, the prophets see themselves as political opponents of the ideal of, of a world empire. And, um, this begins with, uh, with God, creator of heaven and earth, uh, telling Abraham to, uh, to leave Babylonia and to set up shop, uh, on a hill in a tent, uh, with, uh, with some kinsmen where he is, he essentially returns to the life of, uh, of, uh, of a tribesman or a clansman at the age of 75. God promises to make him a great nation. And the first question you should ask is, why would God promise to make him a great nation when all the other kings are being promised that they will get to rule the world? Uh, Neither Abraham nor any of his descendants, nor even Moses, who, who receives the law that's supposed to teach all mankind, are commanded to go out and conquer. The opposite, Israel is given borders. And the the God of Israel is the first God in history, as far as we know, who gives borders to his own nation and says he will punish them if they transgress the borders because the neighboring nations, whatever their doings, whatever they may be like, they've been promised their lands by God as well. And this this idea that uh, you may be entrusted with a with a message, a teaching that you understand to be divine and you understand to have universal implications and nevertheless it's not your job to, uh, pick, take up the sword and impose these teachings on the world. This is a political and moral and theological revolution that takes place, uh, w- with, with, with the Old Testament and is you can see elements of it throughout European history, but it really comes into, into its own as a, as a principle, uh, with the, the, the English, uh, Declaration of Independence in effect from the Holy Roman Empire in 1534 and from the Papacy. And thereafter we have, uh, Dutch independence and, and American independence and the independence of afterwards of many other countries and, the the principle that that a world world of justice is one in which each nation will have its own unique traditions and we hope will pursue God in accordance with those unique traditions, that really is a a principle, a biblical principle, which um, gets its first real, real opportunity to form the order in Europe and in the world uh, beginning in the fifteen hundreds it's it's an astonishing contribution of of the bible to our uh to our most basic and most cherished political uh theories uh, one of, um,
1: that's one of the areas that we wanted to raise some questions about um, the the biblical understanding of empires and uh the uh, there Two dimensions of the question for me: one would be the biblical side of things, and then the other is uh, trying to disentangle empires and nations historically, and whether it's as uh, clean-cut as the as your book seems to claim it is. On the biblical side of things, you, you're right that there are polemics, certainly polemics against centralized authority. There's there are polemics against uh, narratives that uh, depict the uh, tyranny of large-scale empires but then you also have emperors like cyrus who uh send uh, you know he sponsors the rebuilding of the second temple you have emperors like nebuchadnezzar who is uh, you have a series of narratives in the book of daniel where nebuchadnezzar is shown to be an an idolater or uh, he's shown to be a a typical gentile emperor but then in the course of the narrative uh, he comes to acknowledge the uh, comes to acknowledge the God of Israel, and in Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar is described as receiving the authority that he has from God, and he's uh, given authority over nations and over the beasts of the earth. He's uh, almost uh, a new Adam figure in uh, in Jeremiah's description. So, how do you how do you fit those more positive portraits of uh, emp- empires and emperors into your into your understanding?
2: Well, I, I certainly would not. Would not say that jeremiah gives has God granting authority to nebuchadnezzar the, the 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 portrait in uh in jeremiah is uh is wholly negative but uh but you're absolutely right that uh that the prophets see um, see the destruction of Israel as as punishment and they see nebuchadnezzar as a as an instrument in in god 's uh, hands, which is, is part of a a, a broader um, prophetic uh, theory of of the rise and fall of nations. You you, you you remember that when Israel enters the land, Israel is also depicted as uh, as uh, being God's in- instrument in pu- punishing uh, the, the the Canaanites for their their evil doing. So the the uh, the the idea that nations rise and fall in accordance with the evil that they do that the evil that a nation does ultimately brings about its destruction is is a is a is a a central and important biblical uh thesis um i I don't i certainly don't mean to say that that every emperor is personally a a a bad fellow there's no question that 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 Cyrus is, uh, is lauded for his, uh, for, for, for his, his kindness to the Jews. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, Artaxerxes, and you could, you could probably find others. I, I don't, but we're not talking about the, the soul of the, the, the individual. We're talking about the, the question of, what should the political order look like to the extent that it can be influenced? And for that, I would look at the, uh, the, the visions of, uh, the, the coming world, the coming political order, uh, th- throughout the prophets in, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, and Zahariah and so on, uh, where, where there, there are no, there are no cases in which, as far as I know, there are no cases in which the, uh, the israelite prophets uh, describe the uh, the order of the world as one in which uh, cer- certainly not as one in which nations are eliminated, eliminated and not even mm-hmm. as one in which all nations are under a uh, a single ruler the uh, the judgment of the nations in jerusalem is depicted as voluntary the nations come to jerusalem in order to learn from learn israel's ways uh, and uh, sometimes as in in the prophet joel uh, that takes place after a, uh, a a vast military victory but the fact that it takes place after a vast military victory still doesn't mean that the world is going to be governed uh, as an empire an empire involves the imposition by force Of a way of life on all peoples in the world and that is not that's not something that we see in scripture just the opposite it's the uh the uh uh, each each nation under its own vine and under its own fig tree from micha which is i think the dominant uh image and i know of no no case in which empire is described as the desirable end state for humanity
1: Yeah. Just to go back to the comment about uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I was thinking of the beginning of Jeremiah 27. Let me quote a little bit. I'm quoting from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, The Lord says, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts who are on the face of the earth by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes, then many nations and great kings will take will make him their servant. So that was that was the that was the basis for the suggestion that Nebuchadnezzar is granted authority uh from God. I
2: I, I think you have to be you have to be a little bit uh care, careful with with uh, uh checking checking the Hebrew for words like pleasing in my sight. Uh please the tov uh in in Hebrew just means uh, what's good in my eyes. It, it, uh, it means whatever, whatever I believe to be fitting or appropriate. And it doesn't, does not, as far as I can see, uh, indicate, uh, any kind of, uh, um, moral goodness or moral authority that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, has because he's such a righteous fellow. Um but, you know, I... Yeah, the, the-
1: the point wasn't so much about nebuchadnezzar's own personal uh piety or uh, morality but um, again verse 6 says that the lord has given these lands into the hand of nebuchadnezzar that looks like the lord is establishing uh for the time being partly for the purpose as you say partly for the purpose of punishing israel but establishing for the time being an order that transcends this a national order that, that he establishes this empire for his purposes.
2: Well, that I think that's very hard to to hold on to. If if God establishes that empire, then I mean it it, it falls within decades. So th- th- there isn't much much establishing going on. It, it's a, it's an in- instrument that destroys Israel, and then it's destroyed in turn almost immediately. So I I I really wouldn't attribute too much. Uh, Um, uh, godly mission for it.
3: Within the book, you talk about the taxonomy of an original order of tribes and clans, and then the nation-state, and then the empire. And you talk about the need for a philosophy of government, but also, alongside that, a philosophy of political order. Um, I'd be interested to hear you say more about that, and then also to relate, maybe tease out a bit, is there a difference between an ancient empire like that of um, Babylonia or a modern empire which seems to be built upon a greater principle of universality and it's not just the assertion of one particular people over all others but it's almost a logic of production, or economy, and um, a logic of rule that is applied universally. It seems to me that's far more at the heart of something like the project of the European Union. It's a, it's a technocratic um, process that almost exalts universal principles over the particularity of nations, whereas a traditional empire seems to be doing something slightly different.
2: One of the consistent uh, i look it's a good it's a good question um uh, one of the consistent characteristics of of uh what I'm describing as an imperialist mindset is the the view of each new empire that it is completely unprecedented and that its its rule in the world is going to be uh morally and technologically and politically in some way different from all of its predecessors uh, such that it has a hope of lasting forever rather than simply collapsing uh, as its predecessors did and i um i i think it should be easy for contemporary readers at least to get as far as uh, seeing these these ancient these ancient empires described in the bible uh, as having Alexander's empire as a successor, the Roman empire as a successor, and then the Holy Roman empire and the Islamic caliphate with its aspiration to uh, to bring, bring uh, peace and prosperity and truth to the world. I, I, I think most people can see that continuity and, and see it at least as far as, let's say, um, a, uh, a Napoleon... Who uh, promises the world that he's going to bring the enlightenment to, to to the world by force? And each nation that Napoleon conquers, within a few weeks, he's he's written them a new constitution and he imposes uh, justice as he sees uh, as he sees sees fit according to his enlightened worldview. Um, I think most people can can see that. They can probably even see that uh, the that the Nazis are an imitation of the the Roman Empire consciously, and they call themselves the Third Reich because they see themselves as heirs to the Holy Roman Empire, and likewise the Communists. So if we can see that, then the only question is, are we able to understand uh, a a clearly well-intentioned enterprise such as the... Uh, the present uh, effort by principally the Germans, with some help by the French, uh, of subjugating dozens of other nations uh, to their way of doing things. Now, my friends who are, who are pro-European, they say, Joram, how can you say such things? Uh, can't you see that Europe is a democracy? And my response to them is that I can see no such thing at all. I do not see that Europe is a, is a democracy it's precisely not a democracy. it is a uh, it is a, a bureaucratic and judicial political structure which dictates um, laws to countries whose legislatures do not necessarily accept them or vote for them. it It does not permit national self-determination. And more recently we we, we, we we've seen. We've seen the EU intervening in everything from uh, from the governance of a a domestic judiciary in Poland to immigration in Hungary to the appointment of a a finance minister in Italy, the the operation of an entire economy in Greece, and, of course, the size of the apples that English farmers are allowed to grow for export. I, I, I see nothing like a democracy in Europe. What I see is the the desire and the will for empire um, imposing itself in a way that is uh, ever more ugly. And if it's allowed to continue, then we will get to see it flourish in its ugliness.
1: So just the size and the shape of the fruit, right? It has to fit into the... <laughs> <laughs> doesn't have to fit into the uh, standardized, standardized uh, slot in the box, so it can be shipped properly. Um, th- I wanted to raise a historical question kind of along these lines. Um, uh, you describe the formation of nations as being a, an alliance of clans and tribes together. Um, and then yes. uh, empires are aggressive and, uh, and they expand by conquest. But then, at various times, you recognize that there's uh, there's more overlap of those two models than than uh, that that simple scheme would suggest. You you point out, for example, that you have the suppression of uh, suppression of local languages in France, for example. Uh, you have uh, different uh, different national groups. I mean, uh, uh, the, the United Kingdom um, is a uh, is a union of Several different peoples or nations. Uh, I wouldn't say that the the union is entirely a voluntary thing. It seems to me that the English have acted like an empire in order to establish uh, a United Kingdom that includes the, uh, Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. So, uh, how, how do you? It seems like the 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 uh, the sharp distinction you're making between nation and empire. Historically doesn't doesn't fit and then many much of what many of the uh, entities we describe as nations uh, Formed in kind of an imperial way
2: uh, Well, th- certainly it's true that the the, the, the British um, Set out to conquer the world. I mean the British Empire is uh, is hardly a It's hardly a national state um, so I i i I definitely don't think that the um uh, that we have yet achieved any kind of ideal moment where in 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 and i don't know if we ever will in which every nation um, is willing to restrain itself and to remain within its own borders i think the 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 thing that's interesting historically sure. is that the europeans um do in the uh, in the 15 and 1600s, they do develop, um, a, uh, under, under the inspiration of their, of their reading the Old Testament, they do develop a, a, um, an aversion to the conquest and elimination of other European nations. And so that the, uh, the Europeans themselves, at least the Western Europeans, see themselves as having reached a kind of a stage of a stage in Christian civilization in in which uh even if they continue to fight wars it it stops being a a, a it stops being reasonable in the eyes of the English to try to take over all of France and uh <laughs> digest it, which had been the case you know for for centuries during the the during the middle ages uh, the yes. the the idea that that there should be natural borders of some kind dividing european nations and that they should not cross them uh, that that really is a um a a principle after the westphalia treaties even even if it's not always uh, obeyed and what's interesting about that principle it is certainly violated by you know by the dutch and the english and 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 you know, almost any european people that that could do it when it comes to uh the americas and africa and asia so w- w- there is this bizarre duality in which europeans are claiming to be uh to be nations within boundaries that are civilized to one another and uh, uh and attempting to attain justice and peace in the context of Europe, while at the same time their imperialism is brutal and uh, and uh, up until the end of the 19th century only grows more aggressive uh, simultaneously. So I, I certainly don't have any interest in defending that kind of uh, behavior, but what I do propose in The Virtue of Nationalism is that Uh, that you're absolutely right. Human beings are, uh, are, are terrible in their desire to reach beyond what is theirs and to conquer. And the question that I think we need to ask ourselves is whether the biblical theory of a, of a world of bounded independent nations, uh, which are, in which good borders make good neighbors is that a uh, a view that we as uh as uh, bible believing jews and christians or maybe simply as uh bystanders looking for a good idea um is that something that we embrace as a as a, an actual an active component in of justice as the prophets uh believed that we would um, the fact that his, historically it 's been very difficult to implement um I will simply grant i think it's it 's true but by the time you get to the twentieth century, I do think that there there was for let's say during World War two for example the the uh the allies uh, certainly were broadcasting to The conquered nations of europe that it was national freedom that they would receive at the end of the war in other words they they had the idea of uh fighting against uh hitler's imperialism and uh, after world war ii you can see that the relationship between uh let's say for example the eisenhower administration and the and and the british empire was difficult because Eisenhower was a nationalist in the sense that we 're discussing. he wanted to see mm-hmm. the British and French empires dismantled because he wanted to see the liberation of nations around the world so mm-hmm. the the idea existed and it and it mm-hmm. it was successful in the sense that that it led to the independence of India it led to the independence of israel it led, led to the independence of all sorts of nations uh, but it it, it's certainly never been implemented perfectly, and I don't know if it can be implemented perfectly. Maybe that's just too much to ask. Still, it might be the best principle. i
3: would be interested to hear your thoughts on the relationship between empires and economics, because whether we're talking about something like the British Empire and its relationship to the East India Company or the European Union and its relationship to earlier economic trading areas, It seems to me that the growth of empires very much depends upon economic impulses and realities, and nations too, and the existence of the nation through um, the minting of currency and taxation and forming a unified realm of exchange. But as capital becomes increasingly footloose and global, and we increasingly move around a lot between nations, how can nationalism remain a feasible option in that sort of society?
2: I that's a wonderful question. I I think you're exactly right that uh to to put the finger on 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 this uh desire to maximize wealth as being a driving engine uh behind imperialism and it's interesting that in uh in the Bible uh the Bible it doesn't doesn't miss this at all. Uh the the Abraham moves to Canaan to live in a tent uh, so he's supposed to establish this uh, this uh, uh, godly life on, on on a hill with his goats and sheep, but there's a famine in the land in every generation from the time that he gets there, it, from the moment that he gets there. And it's imperial Egypt, uh, which is the the capable of su- supplying brain and, and keeping the millions alive. And... I think you can trace that that association throughout throughout history that the uh, maximizing prosperity involves imposing a, a uniform law and a unif- uniform uh, zone of trade across the lo- largest possible te- territory and that's, that's the same engine that we see behind globalization today. Now, I don't there's a few different issues the first one is you you ask how how can nations continue under these circumstances well i tried i tried to emphasize in my book that economics is not the only force shaping the politics of uh human societies it is a strong force self-interest and economics are, are certainly a strong force Consent and sympathy are also strong forces, but by far the strongest force is uh, mutual loyalty, the mutual loyalty of uh, of clans and tribes and later nations. And that force um, is uh, ignored in most mod- modern political theory. I mean, you you see a little bit of, ac- of it actually in... in in some of the Marxist theories, but most of the 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 liberal conventional political theories that were taught in university or even in high school, um, enlightenment theories like uh, uh, Locke or Hobbes Rousseau, or Kant these are theories that completely ignore the central the central force the, the most powerful force shaping human politics, which is the human ability and i I suspect necessity of forming bonds of mutual loyalty with with groups that are uh, considered to be uh, my people as opposed to some other people. And um, this is simply not going to go away just because uh, the uh, the 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 globalist or you know if you want to call it a nicer name. The, the, the liberal imperial, imperialist view, uh, teaches everyone that best would be if all the borders fall and there, there are no limits on immigration and there are no limits on, 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 on the free flow of goods. That's, you know, it's a pretty picture, but it's completely utopian because it, it, it's not relevant to actual human beings. Actual human beings, you know, maybe human nature will change thousands of years from now and then we'll have a different discussion. But for now, human beings continue to have the same nature that they've always had. And that nature is a nature that, uh, that looks for the establishment of, uh, of, of home in a community of, uh, clans and tribes and nations. And those, uh, nations I actually think are necessary. I think they're they're a part of God's plan. It's not a, a coincidence that the nations that God creates a world of of, of nations rather than a unified world after the, the the sin of the Tower of Babel. God wants a world of nations. It's up to us to figure out why why He wants this to be uh, such a powerful aspect of our our lives. I, I propose a few things in the book. I suggest that a world in which nations compete with one another is a world of experiments in which each one pursues uh, a different set of ideas and a different approach to god and it's this that allows us to discover and experiment with advances uh, political advances such as uh, limited government and and uh, individual liberties and economic advances like the the, uh, the, the free market uh, but many of the liberal internationalists or liberal imperialists who I know today, they don't want to see a world of experiments of that kind. They believe that they've attained the final correct answer, that liberalism has in all important things achieved the final answer politically and economically even with respect to religion they they're absolutely certain that uh that by private, privatizing religion and sweeping it out of the public sphere they have the final ultimate answer for how to bring peace and prosperity i reject this i think it's simply false i don't think we've reached any final answer history hasn't ended and uh the best for all of us would be uh, a world of uh nations that are independent to pursue different experiments, so that each of us can hope to learn things that we have not yet learned.
1: Let me try to tie a couple of things together from the last few minutes of discussion. Um, and the, the, the thing I want to propose and get your reaction to, Yorm, has to do with the relationship between the particular and uh, some kind of transnational, uh, maybe not a transnational order, but at least a transnational um, commitments or transnational beliefs, I'm th- thinking uh, several different examples of what I'm thinking of. You, you mentioned the order of Westphalia, the, the Protestant order of nation states, but how much does that depend on the fact that these are all, in th- the fact that this works, how much does that depend on the fact that these are all uh, Protestant nation states? And so despite their national particularity, they all share something beyond uh, this, the national boundaries. I think of another example would be the visions of the prophets. You have nations that are at peace with one another in Isaiah 2, for example. But those nations come to beat their swords to plowshares and their spears to pruning hooks because they all go to Zion and learn the Lord's ways. So there's, uh, they remain independent nation states, but the thing that brings peace is something beyond the, beyond the nation state. Or another, another example of this, I think of, this brings in what uh, Alistair was just talking about. Uh, about the uh, economic order, um, if, you have, if, you have, if you have trade that's going on beyond the uh, immediate neighbors in a country, uh, there have to be trade routes, whether by land or by sea, and those trade routes have to be protected. Um, much of America's early uh, uh, vent- venturing into global conflicts had to do with protection of trade routes. Um, you know, the, the outposts of the British colonial system start out as trading outposts. So, you know, that's uh, you, you can have a, a thriving national economy within a network of nations, but there has to be, beyond that, this kind of universal, uh, some kind of universal order that uh, provides uh, stability for international trade to take place. So, those are those are kind of hitting, those are three different ways of hitting at the same general theme that... And the question again is: To what extent do does a does a an order of nation states depend on something that transcends those nation states in order to be stable?
2: Uh, It certainly, if we're talking about ideas, uh, then it certainly depends on something transcendent because the 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 agreement that uh, that we're going to honor borders. Uh, is itself a uh a that we're going to draw borders and honor them and attempt to deal with uh difficulties across borders through negotiations. All all of these are are moral commitments um which as you say may very well have to do with the fact that uh that uh even though Europe was divided along confessional lines into uh Catholic and Calvinist and and and, and Lutheran countries, um, still there was some uh some sense that they felt that they were some kind of uh unified civilization and uh that that permitted these rules to be honored to some degree. So I, I think that, that that observation is right, that it is uh we're not going to have a, a world of a world of independent nations if there isn't a critical mass of nations that are committed to that. And the same is going to be true of uh, of uh, economic liberty and the same is going to be true of, of uh, uh, more, more importantly maybe the, the recognition of God, God's kingship. All of this is I think um, I think it's difficult to disagree with and i don't i don't i don't know if you and I have any disagreement. I think the issue only comes up uh, and, and and this takes us to the the political drama of uh, of of our generation the The issue that comes up is uh, when when you say securing trade routes, are you talking about one uh, supranational or supranational Entity with sufficient military power and decision-making authority to be able to impose certain values and measures on large parts of the globe or on the entire planet. That—that's the vision of the globalists, which begins with um, in in recent history begins with uh, uh, George H. W. Bush's New World Order which he envisioned as involving the Security Council of the United Nations as a kind of super legislature which would determine uh, international law for the world. Now, uh, subsequent American presidents backed off from from that vision and came up with with their own versions of it. But every version of it ends up having some kind of clause that goes, um, and if... Some nation refuses to participate in this world order, then of course uh, they will have to they they will be forced to play by the rules by uh, American power uh, with with allied contingents from Europe, and here here we end up with uh, the, the the great question of our time: that aspiration, did it make sense to begin with, and has it made sense now that we've gotten to see it operate for a, for a generation? Uh, Would it really be so terrible if instead of the United States um, being uh, responsible for policing the trade routes in uh, the South China Sea, uh, the Australians built up their navy and uh, the Indians built up their navy and uh, somebody else took uh, a turn at doing this and we had a world in which uh, there was no one center? Now, there are some people who believe that Americans are so good at governing themselves and so, uh, so superlatively, uh, just and decent that they're the only ones who should have the role of governing the world. Now, I have immense, immense admiration for the American experiment and for the American people. And, uh, and I think great things have come of America, and I believe it's still possible that great things will come of America. And, and I nonetheless think that the, the step to, to, from America as a great nation state to America as the, uh, the guarantor of a worldwide liberal law that it imposes on the nation is a step that no country should take. I think that there are serious theological problems with it, but I think in practice, even before you get there, we've gotten to see uh, that America doesn't know how to uh, govern uh, Iraq and Yugoslavia and Somalia and Afghanistan. And and that shouldn't surprise us, because America is not doing so wonderfully at governing itself at the moment, so why should it be, know how to govern Iraq? So there I would suggest that if... If what we're talking about is a worldwide enforcer, a worldwide power that imposes its views on the world, then I think that the, the the cost is going to quickly exceed the benefits.
3: Along these lines, within within your book, one of the things that I found very striking, the statement that you made about the balance of power, that it's not about securing safety, security and peace, but about ensuring independence. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about why is it that that value of independence is so important? Is it merely towards the end of competitive political order where we can have these experiments, or is there something more about the dignity of a people? And how would you would you relate this to a broader principle that applies to persons more generally, like the vision in Micah of everyone under his own vine and fig tree, in this sense of the right of every single person to have their own dominion, the dignity of their own place in the world, and their own context in which they can live out their own calling according to their conscience.
2: I think you've said it very well. I I don't know how much more I I, I have to add. I I think it's possible to read the, uh, the mosaic law and the mosaic political theory just precisely the way that you just read it, and I think that that would be right that there is the the level of uh, the the uh, the individual and the family uh, in which uh, laws like um, uh, property rights and the prohibition on murder and adultery these kinds of laws their entire purpose is to create a sphere of autonomy in which a Uh, A family can have its own freedom and flourish, and it depends on the recognition of borders between one family and, and another, between individuals and between families. Then the Mosaic law then climbs up and builds similar boundaries among tribes, and beyond that, boundaries among nations. And the the analogy continues to to scale upward The, the 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 theory is consistent it says different nations will have different ways just the way that different families will have different ways and the only way for there to be for you to to uh for for one nation to accept the uh the the inherent dignity of another nation is to allow it uh, this freedom, which is the, precisely what a border is for. Today we always talk about borders as though their purpose is to keep people out, but the original meaning of borders between nations is is self-restraint, like the self-restraint of, of, of the king and the law of the king in Deuteronomy. The purpose of the border is to for, for your nation to restrain itself and to not, as Moses says, don't don't torment the neighbors. Now, that, that view is, uh, is correct as biblical interpretation, and I think that it's correct as, uh, as, as good political, uh, philosophy in, in our time. We, I, look, I'm not saying, here's what I'm not, I don't, I don't want anyone to come away from this conversation and think, well, if the Cambodians are killing 2 million people uh, of their own people, then we should just let them do it. Or if, uh, if uh, 800,000 people are being massacred in Rwanda, then we should just let them do it. If you have the power to intervene, stop it, and get out, and then not rule Cambodia and Rwanda for the next 100 years or 50 years, then, then I say do it. The problem that we have is that that is, that's not in our time the interpretation of, uh, of, uh, of best practices in the international arena. The internet, the the interpretation of best practices is that the neighbors aren't governing themselves correctly, and so we have to coerce them into governing themselves correctly. We're not talking about millions dying. We're talking about differences in, in, uh in political systems in religious systems in moral systems and those things i believe um i believe that we are far down the road in in believing that that the right attitude is is contempt for for the self-government government of other nations and the belief that, that that we as americans or as europeans we have the right answers and and should impose them on others
1: we can continue. I want to ask uh, uh, Yoram, you first. Are there things in the book that we haven't touched on that you would like to talk about? We don't want to kind of distort the whole conversation in ways that are picking at side issues if you feel like we've missed some of the main, some of the main themes.
2: Well, I, just one that I, I, I would like to emphasize is that, that the Jewish vision going all the way back to Abraham um is not just about division of the world into nations, but also it it has a uh, a universal vision. God tells Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, asekal the gadol." but at the same time he says, mishpachot adama," that through you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And th- those two things, I think, are in in the Jewish tradition, in the biblical tradition, inseparable. That the the recognition of boundaries, which allows uh, allows the dignity and freedom of the neighbors, uh, which we were just discussing, does not mean giving up on the hope of uh, that that things will improve. It doesn't mean turning a blind eye to the fact that that there is such a thing as uh, injustice and that God's creatures do suffer in all sorts of terrible ways in all sorts of places in the world. But the, the, the border teaches us that it's too simple for us to say, well, I'd like to deliver mankind. I would like to save mankind for its misery. What's my solution? My solution is is that i conquer and i rule that is that's something that human beings naturally come to all through history and it's something that the god of israel recognizes as being evil doing and unjust the idea that you should allow yourself to go out, to to wage war on the entire planet in order to do good that's something that human beings are simply i i believe according to our tradition, not capable of doing without doing more evil than than good and it's 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 startling to to see, for example that that even Adolf Hitler and mein Kampf promises that he's going to bring peace to the world that he's going to deliver the world and and bring peace and that simultaneously while saying that Germany is going to be mistress of the globe and lord of the earth. Now th- this this claim that you yourself know how to bring prosperity and peace, th- that's easy for everybody to say. What's difficult to do and godly to do is to say, I think I know it's best, but I'll draw a border and I'll try to implement it here within my borders. And if it really is best, then the other nations, they'll come to me looking to learn. i
3: would be interested to hear your thoughts on the value of um, certain peoples that are scattered in various contexts as minorities within nations, Um, particularly the Jewish people who have had such a big impact upon different countries within which they've been and had a a great contribution to the well-being of the nations and their history. What value is there to be found in those things that disrupt the um i suppose the monolithic nature of a particular people and relate them to something outside of themselves while being um near at hand
2: one of my aims with the book is to try to disrupt the 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 myth of the monolithic nation um the i I don't really know where it where it comes from but I, I do think that uh, people often speak about uh, about homogeneous nations, and it's actually quite rare in history that uh, to find uh, uh, a, a political force like the Nazis, whose entire goal is homogenization and 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 racial purity. Th- these kinds of things are actually very rare. Usually nations are um are 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 diverse internally um, that the a given nation is itself uh, made up of all sorts of tribes that are very different from one another, and that was historically true of ancient israel, it was true of ancient greece and and later it was true of the Dutch and the English and the Americans and so on. Internal diversity is the norm. And when a nation is sufficiently independent and sufficiently strong, it can also um, adopt and honor um, the uh various minorities who are not strictly uh strictly part of the original national tribes and so it's although it's true that there are many independent nation states in which you know, I wouldn't particularly want to be one of the minorities living in them, but it's also the case that, that the great experiments with, with ever greater tolerance of, uh, of what you're calling disruptive minorities, these experiments are, uh, are things that take place within certain nations. It's strong, internally unified nations like uh, the, the, the Dutch and the, uh, and the English and the, the, uh, uh, Americans as, as they were at the, at the founding. It's those nations that experiment with, uh, with toleration and have shown us what, what toleration can do. Whereas tolerant empire is almost a, you know, it, it, it it's a contradiction in terms. Uh, empires are capable of favoring certain peoples when it's useful to them, but they're never tolerant of all peoples, um, at, at at length. So I, I think it's important to, uh, to ask ourselves historically where we actually have found the, uh, the tolerance of minorities most, uh, best developed. And I, 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 th- I think that it's the case that it's u- usually within within uh, particular national states.
1: The last question, I think, uh, in in many ways, it's for me the crucial question in this whole debate, you know, whole discussion rather. And um, I, you you said earlier, Yoram, um, you're not sure whether we have differences. I think that where I would want to locate the differences is in the issue of the the role of the church, the Christian Church, in our understanding of the relations among nations, and our understanding of uh, political order in general. And there are a couple of things I want to highlight there and then get your reaction to. The basic reality for Christians is that uh, whatever nation or tribe Christians are members of, uh, that identity and that loyalty uh, is at least conjoined with uh, or subordinated to uh, loyalty to and bonds with a uh, a uh, a catholic community a catholic communion that uh, transcends whatever tribe or nation christians believe that the the spirit is what binds us together as members of the body of christ and that that means that the bond that we have with brothers and sisters uh, in the spirit in the church is deeper and stronger and more fundamental than the bonds that we have i think naturally with national with national brothers and sisters so um um, I'm just stating that as a as a, a Christian understanding of the of the nature of the church, and I, that, nece, that seems to me necessarily to subordinate the mutual bonds you're talking about with within nations to something that ex, uh, exceeds a national boundary. So um, the general question is, I guess the general question would be how do you see the relationship between uh, Christianity and its universal understanding of the church? It's Catholic understanding of the church and what you're defending as nationalism. And that's partly, I ask that question partly against the background of this statement that you make late in the book. I'm quoting from what in my copy is page 230. One can have no better destroyer than an individual ablaze with the love of a universal truth. There's something of the destroyer intellectually, if not physically, in everyone who embraces universal salvation doctrines and the empires they call into being, unquote. And so I don't know if that's a statement about Christianity or not, uh, and uh, so but that leaves me with the question how do you How do you see the relationship between Christianity and its understanding of the church as a global communion and the order of nation states that you 're advocating? Is Christianity something that 's going to subvert that order or uh, is it related in some other fashion
2: well, I certainly don 't know what 's going to happen you know Christianity <laughs> has been has taken many different forms over the last couple of thousand years and i i don't want to be in a position of predicting uh trying to predict which which forms it's going going to take um it it's certainly the case that uh and i i, I write this in my book as well that the the possibility of of a a loyalty that is um that exceeds the bounds of a given nation is something that we've seen in history and it does exist it's possible to have a um a a loyalty among english-speaking nations or among hindu peoples um and there probably have been times in history in which in which you could see the the uh, mutual loyalty of of christian peoples to one another for example in uh in the medieval defense of europe against uh against islam um so that's certainly possible i i think that i would I would question whether what you're describing as a an ultimate loyalty uh to the christian commun- communion whether that is and here i'm asking a question i don't I don't actually have an answer for you or even an opinion, but i I would ask whether whether the doctrinal assertion of a the existence of a a communion of Christian believers who are a unity whether that is uh, borne out in the real world politically um, i haven't in, in mind an issue like the uh the, the the persecution of christians uh in much of the middle east today in mm-hmm. which my 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 christian friends and people in in leadership positions in uh in christian communities in america and britain have have told me repeatedly how frustrated they are with the the unwillingness of uh of their their Christian communities to recognize uh persecuted in some some cases massacred Christians in the middle east as as their their brothers uh, and that is i can understand that that's um that's a disappointment and maybe uh maybe you'll see it as something to overcome. I think that most Jews hearing this. Uh, definitely have the reaction that, 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 that Christians should overcome this difficulty and help their Christian brothers. But it does raise the question of whether the, the universal Christian communion, uh, exists in, in reality as bonds of mutual loyalty among all Christians or whether it exists, uh, really just at the at the level for now of of theory, and in practice, uh, Christians are just human, and their loyalties tend to be uh, to their, the nations in which they live, and and not to all Christians. That I don't know. I, I raise these as questions, yeah. and not as answers.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely. Those are definitely fair comments, and I I do think that that's a a flaw that uh, Christians need to overcome i would say that uh, there are uh, many christian ministries that try to alert christians in north america and elsewhere about persecuted christian groups around the world and call to call christians around the world to pray for their persecuted for their persecuted brother i guess that part of my answer to that would be and this would just open up the whole discussion again i guess part of my Part of what I see as the solution to that is a recognition of the subordinate character of those national ties, and uh, for Christians to recognize more fully the, uh, the Catholic character of the church. So I, I see that as a, a way in which national loyalties have uh, subverted the, what, uh, what the, the way that I think the church is uh, called to function, which is as a, as a Catholic community. As I said, that would that would raise all our previous discussion again, I suppose, and, or lead in other directions. Unfortunately, we're going to have to close our our conversation. Uh, thank you, Yoram, for uh, visiting us on the Theopolis Podcast.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Yes, thank you, Alistair, for as always for participating. Uh, I hope we can have you back sometime, Yoram. Uh, a very uh, stimulating conversation for us, and uh, very important issues for us. And uh, we're uh, delighted to uh, continue discussing with you, given our our common love for Scripture and our common commitment to try to work out our our political views from the Bible. So thank you, and um, Amen. thank you, and uh, many blessings to you.
2: Likewise, take care.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.